This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espiner. We're talking to New Zealand and international experts about the way our lives may change in the wake of COVID-19 how we'll live, how we'll work, how we'll govern ourselves, the nature of our health and economic systems, and the future of our environment. And today we're talking about health. How is the world coping, collaborating, and combating the virus, and how will it change the way we care for our populations? With us is David Nabarro, who is the World Health Organization's Special Envoy on COVID-19 and Professor of Global Health at the Imperial College in London. He's worked in global health for more than 40 years. Early in his career, he worked as a medical officer in northern Iraq for Save the Children. He joined the NHS and then the WHO in 1999. He's played a leading role helping the UN responses to avian and human influenza, to Ebola, to cholera in Haiti, and now in combating COVID-19. Paparangi Reid is with us. Paparangi Reid is the Tumwake of Māori Health at the Faculty of Medical Health Sciences at Auckland University. She has science and medical degrees from the university and is a specialist in public health. Her iwi affiliations are to Te Rarawa and her research interests include analysing disparities between Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations. Helen Clark also joins us. She was, of course, Prime Minister of New Zealand from 1999 to 2008, but also has a long and strong interest in public health and was, in fact, Health Minister in the fourth Labour government in the late 1980s. After politics, she was the Administrator of the United Nations Development Programme and has now established the Helen Clark Foundation. I'll start with you, uh, Helen Clark. Just give us an update in terms of your assessment about where we're at. I mean, are we easing off here, or do you think that this pandemic is still on the way up? Oh, I think it hasn't anywhere reached its height of a first wave in a, in a number of countries. And the ones that concern me are the ones we don't see on BBC News uh, every night. I had uh, news uh, via a friend uh, about Sierra Leone, for example. It was one of the countries really badly hit by Ebola um, six, seven years ago. And I'm told there of a friend who has lost family members, lost her best friend, had friends who've been seriously uh, ill. So there's a lot that we're, we're not hearing from the poorest countries, which have the, the least means to fight this. Is that also your concern, Paparangi, in terms of some of those vulnerable populations, perhaps poorer countries with weaker health systems who are 
in a less robust position to take the measures that we've perhaps seen in our part of the world. Absolutely, and, and not only the poorer health, poorer countries in the world, but also the poorer people within even the richer countries. And you, Helen Clark, you talk about um, Sierra Leone. Are there other areas that you are worried about? As South America, it seems to be another one where possibly this could be on the way up rather than easing off. Yes, and it, that's a little surprising in some respects. Uh, I was in uh, Chile just at the very beginning of the period when they were locking down, and Argentina was locking down. And one thought that, as with New Zealand, uh, that uh, might mean a, a quick containment, uh, but it doesn't appear to have. Uh, Chile has gone back into lockdown in, in Santiago, for example, and the number of deaths is really uh, quite significant. So w we are nowhere near through this. We're not through the first wave. And everything I hear is that we will get wave on wave. If people now go crazy with the the relaxation of restrictions in Europe and North America, uh, these waves, well, we may not actually even see the tide go out much on the, the early waves. I'm very much of the view of Peter Piot, uh, who's one of the world's most eminent virologists and, and was laid very, very low with COVID-19 himself, that there is no exit from this pandemic, actually, until there's a vaccine. And, and that's not quick. So we just have to steel ourselves for the reality that physical distancing, all these basic public health measures that have been put in place are with us for the foreseeable future. And populations that ignore that, I'm afraid, are going to have a longer, rougher time of it. Paparangi Reid, is that how you see it? We're going to have to learn to live with this virus rather than some idea that we can fight a war and, and win it? Um, I am concerned about our reliance on a vaccine, um, you know, um, just because that's not an easy answer, especially for coronaviruses. In Māori terms, it's an it's a ngangara, it's something from the natural world, and we do have to learn to live with it. We do have to um, correct ourselves to learn how to live with something that's unpleasant, and we do have to change our behaviour to live with it. So um, in the public health world, I can see that sense from the traditional understanding of um, um, things which are diseases or problematic for us. So, yeah, I do have this balance and I am concerned that we're pinning our hopes that a, a vaccine is going to come charging over the horizon any minute now. And I'm, I'm not quite holding my breath on that. I'm very hopeful, um, but I'm concerned that that mightn't be a singular hope that we all might be able to um, get access to in a timely fashion. And I know this has been a concern of yours, Helen Clark, hasn't it, in terms of, so first you've got to have the science to get it, then you've got to do it at mass scale, right, and then you've got to distribute it fairly. You've got some concerns in that area. Well, like Paparangi, I'm always an optimist, but I'm a worried optimist. I don't think this is a vaccine that's going to be available quickly. And then even when it becomes available, there is the issue of, of manufacture at scale and very importantly, there's the issue of equity of distribution and, and allocation of it. And I did put my name to a call that was led by uh, UNAIDS and Oxfam and Chatham House in the UK uh, for a people's vaccine. And that uh, went to as a letter to health ministers attending the World Health 
assembly of, you know, in the last 10 days or so. And what we were calling for was an ag agreed global uh, mechanism for rolling out a vaccine when it comes. And we really implored uh, those who are driving vaccine development to take the attitude of Dr. Salk, who, who developed the Salk vaccine against polio, which a number of us as children were administered with. He said he never wanted to make a cent out of that vaccine. He wanted to contribute to the eradication of, of, of polio. That's the spirit and ethos we need now, so that when it's available, you have an allocation and rollout that is, that is global. You prioritize first your health workforce and your most vulnerable populations, which are the older and the health compromised, and, and you take it uh, out from there. But the thought that only rich people in rich countries would get access to something that is literally life-saving and serious disease preventing it is just ab abhorrent to me. Now, the World Health Assembly did go some distance, I think, in, in agreeing around this. It didn't agree to all the things that Oxfam and others put on the table around a mandatory patent pool, for example. But there are mechanisms by which countries under the world trade uh, agreements can invoke intellectual property uh, rules and issue compulsory licenses and enable the manufacture. And that, that I think is where we're going to get to as and when we have a vaccine, which is, is not any time soon. Well, either of you talk me through how this may work. I mean, I've spoken to uh, scientists at Sanofi and uh, GSK and some of these other big companies and they're working away furiously on it and they claim that they wouldn't make a profit on it. But I mean, who knows? I mean, can, can you or can we as the world um, have a system where it's done on a not-for-profit basis? I think um, Helen Clark, you called it a people's vaccine or a, 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 whatever the terminology is. How would that work? Well, it, it could work uh, by uh, the vaccine uh, developer uh, agreeing to make uh, the intellectual property uh, available. Uh, I'm not opposed to people being compensated for what they've invested, but let's face it, there's huge public money globally going into the development of these vaccines. And the quid pro quo, I think, for the public investment uh, should be understandings about then making the intellectual property available for countries to issue compulsory licensing and enable uh, manufacturing uh, at scale. Uh, I think it was uh, the, the French company you, you mentioned uh, which was unwise enough to say that they would give the United States priority for the vaccine if they developed it because the US had funded it. This caused an uproar in France with President Macron himself weighing in. So you can see how sensitive it is, the thought that because I paid for it, I get it first. This is not acceptable in, in our world. And I think we need to keep the pressure on for the people's vaccine to be available to all in a sequenced way. And Paparangi Reid, I see the, the, the government has um, allocated some money for research into a vaccine here. We're working on one too, but some fear that we may be down the bottom of the queue there. So um, vaccine development is a very expensive business. We understand that. But what we're really talking about is one, and, and the whole process of vaccine trials uh, involve a lot of persons, a lot of people, yeah, and a lot of people being invested in the trials. But what we're talking about is 
once vaccine candidates have been trialled and tested and are found to be safe and reliable and do the job, then that, um, for want of a better word, recipe becomes, the intellectual property around that recipe becomes available for vaccine producers around the world and vaccine producers to produce uh, the vaccine for different countries at, um, at, a, at an appropriate cost for that as opposed to someone claiming the intellectual property of that recipe and selling uh, and manufacturing and controlling the production of the vaccine to ensure the price is high. So we're talking about, yes, there is a process of investing in the research and the development and the testing and trialing of the vaccine. And that's expensive and many countries are involved in that. But the other thing is when an appropriate uh, vaccine candidate becomes available as trialled as safe and appropriate, that's when that candidate should be appropriate for wide-scale manufacture at non-inflated prices. So those are two different things. Let's turn to the WHO and um, I'll bring you in, uh, David, perhaps for a bit of a baptism by fire. Um, President Trump has given the WHO what, 30 odd days, I don't know where the clock's ticking at the moment, but uh, saying that he may well make good on his threat, or use another word if you like, to make this withholding of funding permanent. Uh, what is your assessment of the US attitude to the WHO at the moment, and, and does President Trump have a point when he talks about an alarming lack of independence from China? First of all, when dealing with a problem of this magnitude and complexity, uh, it is really important that particularly people who specialise in public health are able to work together uh, in a collective way that's characterised by trust and respect uh, because there are so many unknowns about the virus itself and also the ways in which it affects different populations. There isn't a, a universal playbook of, of how different nations can actually help their people to deal with the constant threat of this virus, which is not going to go away. And so the one thing that I've noticed over the last few months is an extraordinary willingness of professionals all over the world to come together and work together uh, with the sole focus on benefits for everybody everywhere. No discrimination at all on the basis of nationality or sex or ethnicity or, or even wealth. And, and that's what the WHO was created by its member states to do. It's part of the intergovernmental system that's existed since uh, the, the late 1940s. Uh, it exists within a series of rules and one of the most important rules, the international health regulations, actually sets out clearly what governments will do and what the World Health Organization Secretariat should do. And that whole approach has actually worked, in my view, better than I've ever seen it before. I've been involved in numerous outbreaks and emergencies over the years. So it, it remains rather surprising to all of us working on this that the head of one member state out of the 194 should declare that he believes the organization has failed and that um, he wants to see his country withdraw. 
two reasons, really. The first is that actually the United States has been a consistent supporter of international action for global health and has backed numerous countries to try to improve their health defences, as well as being a leader in pandemic preparedness. So I don't believe that suddenly the professionals of the United States have decided that they don't wish to work together with others through the World Health Organization. Uh, and secondly, the United States was one of the countries that wrote the rules, the International Health Regulations 2005, they're called. Uh, and actually, they know perfectly well that the WHO has no powers to go and forcefully uh, inspect what's happening in a country and has to work with the data that it receives from countries. And that applies to all countries. So in summary, uh, the, the actions by uh, the, the head of, of the most um, uh, wealthy of the WHO member states are, are, remain absolutely surprising. Uh, and in addition, uh, it's, it's not good practice to ask an international organization to undertake a detailed inquiry of what it's been doing right in the middle of, of this extraordinary uh, a global phenomenon that is affecting as you've just discussed, poor people, so much worse than people who are better off. Uh, altogether, therefore, uh, what I'm seeing happening is the WHO continuing working to the best effect to do what it has to do. Uh, they, uh, member states clearly don't have full agreement about how the WHO should work, but why on earth uh, in, it require a, a complete re-examination and take staff off working on uh, the issues uh, for, you know, to the best of their effort, uh, right in the middle. It's like uh, asking half the fire service to leave a fire right at the point when it's raging most strongly, uh, simply because you don't agree with the tactics being adopted by the uh, fire chief. And uh, I, can't, I can't explain it. I, I wish I could just answer your question straight to, to indicate what on earth lies behind this. But right now, I think all of us linked to the WHO just have to get on and do the work despite this noise and hope that perhaps uh, people will change their minds. Okay. Helen Clark, you've had extensive experience, obviously, with international organisations um, through your, your time right at the top of the UN. Did you feel that there was any um, integrity or credibility issue with the, with the WHO. The thing that people point to, isn't it, is that, that January 14 tweet that's um, famous now where they've come out and said that preliminary investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of what we now call um, uh, COVID-19. Um, okay, that was mid-January. Things were, were happening pretty fast. But does President Trump have a, have a, a point here by saying that perhaps we were, or the WHO was, uh, too worried about upsetting China? That's the, that's the allegation, isn't it? No, he, he has no point there. Actually, the WHO doesn't criticise member states. And I really empathise with the Director General on this. I spent eight years at UNDP. I never criticised a member state. It's not the way you operate. You need cooperation. You have no coercive or enforcement powers. And if you are going to start boring into a member state about what it's doing and not doing, you can forget about cooperation. That's why the WHO doesn't endorse or advocate, for example, travel bans or border closures, because 
if if it did, then countries aren't going to be frank with it. You know, not all countries are as as, as multilateral, open and transparent as our own. You know, reality uh, check here. Uh, so, in my opinion, the WHO acted on the advice that it had. Uh, and the evidence put before it as soon as it could. You mentioned that particular tweet. Actually, it was extremely soon after that, <laughs> even maybe a day or two, where the WHO said, we now believe there is evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. But it's not going to say there's evidence un unless it is convinced there's evidence. And we expect the world's leading global health organization to act on the best evidence that it can get, not to just you know, lash out at will and say, well, there must be, because they don't have proof of that. As soon as they got proof, they acted. Now, you know, I've been following this extremely closely uh, from the time I was at the World Economic Forum at Davos. And I was one of those who stayed behind at a session where we were told there could be a briefing directly from Geneva uh, on what was happening with respect to this novel coronavirus that had uh, appeared. And it was the day when the committee that advises Dr. Tedros first met and considered it and decided at that point not to recommend the declaration of the public health emergency of international uh, concern. Within a week, they'd recommended it on the 30th of January. But you know, the WHO is a cautious beast. It wants to make sure that what it says uh, is is the case actually actually is so again as David says in the fullness of time when the full review is done and that's not in the middle of when you're fighting the fire all these questions can be asked people can ask where did it come from how did it come who told who what when could the WHO have done something sooner or later we'll get all those answers but right now could we keep the fire hydrant on on the fire I think that's the critical point right now and, and try to mobilize more globally coordinated action to fight this fire. Because one of the, the huge differences between this and the way the world responded to the Ebola outbreak in 2014 is we have no resolution whatsoever from the UN Security Council on this devastating virus, which is a threat to global peace and security, and should be declared as such, as Ebola was uh, six years ago. And we have no globally coordinated action at scale from the G20 to support the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to help the economies which were queuing for help. At last count, there were more than 100 countries asking the IMF for emergency support, and it can't give it. It can support about the 25 poorest the effects of this are being felt way up into the, the middle-income country uh, ranks. And we need a massive package, probably in the scale of $2.5 trillion, available through the international financial institutions to address directly the economic and social crisis that what began as a health pandemic has caused. I'll come back to you um, in a second, Paparangiri, but I just want to come to you again, uh, David, um, Helen Clark mentioned the Ebola crisis, 2014, 2015, um, the US was the one who assembled and led a coalition of, of countries there to counter the spread of disease. They have uh, been huge participants in these international coalitions of the willing in health terms, if you like. And I believe we're the major contributor or are the major contributor to the WHO. How significant would, be, would it be 
should President Trump make good on his threat to withdraw from funding it? Can I just build on what Helen Clark just said and then come directly to that question? We are moving rapidly as a world into the most extraordinary social, economic and political crisis that's going to massively damage the poor nations and also affect hundreds of millions of poor people. Uh, the, the, the extraordinary nature of this global crisis is not fully grasped, I believe, by, by leaders around the world. Uh, it always happens at the beginning of a crisis. You have to try to work out what's going on and then you have to anticipate where it's going to lead. And, and I anticipate not only ma major increases in poverty and malnutrition and uh, unemployment, but long-term damage that, that, that could be much more serious than we're seeing right now. Uh, and just the warning signs are, are definitely there. Um, violence starting up uh, initially in prisons or in other specific locations, but about to extend. Food systems breaking down with clear areas of risk in particular parts of the food sector, tourism collapse, uh, uh, an awful lot of international travel and trade collapse, multiple small to medium enterprises going bankrupt, larger enterprises also in danger. Uh, the overall magnitude of this globally is just like nothing else that we've ever seen. And where's the leadership? It's just not there. Helen's right. And that, I think, should make every single global citizen quite concerned. And so uh, I think that we all need to find the best possible tactical approaches to stimulating the necessary global leadership sooner rather than later, before the damage becomes so serious that it's extremely hard to get back uh, particularly to the global trajectory we're on of improving well-being, uh, reducing poverty, and also reducing exploitation, and, and so on. Uh, so you can't do this, actually, without the United States at the table. Uh, I, I think that all efforts to try to lead our way through global challenges lacking this particular superpower uh, are not going to work. And so... Uh, for me, bringing the United States into the global leadership role that it should be playing has to be priority one for the international community. And I'm talking about the community of leaders of nations, whether it's the G20 or the UN General Assembly, uh, uh, one or other mechanism needs to be invoked as quickly as possible. Uh, and that leadership just will have to be there. I mean, if it comes super late, if we have to wait till after November, all I can say is that the, the, the degree of damage will be uh, extraordinary. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization will be greatly affected by the withdrawal of US funding if the US president uh, has the power to actually do that unilaterally. Uh, staff will be uh, unsure of their medium and long-term future and all that. But uh, listening to the position taken by, by, by the leader, uh, the, the word to the world is, we go on. We don't stop. We can't stop. The issues are so enormous. And so we'll go on with whatever capacities we have. The organization runs with already 
a budget that's only one third of the United States Centers for Disease Control. Uh, it's 7,000 staff are working absolutely flat out and haven't stopped since the time in January that Helen referred to when this started to get into the public notice. So just, we will go on working. The organization will go on working. It'll be working as if it's had an, a, a limb removed, but you know, that is, that is just the way it has to be. You're listening to After the Virus, a series of RNZ panel discussions hosted by me, Guy and Espiner, about how our lives will change in the wake of COVID-19. Paparangi Reid, um, some fairly grave concerns outlined there. Do, do you share them? Um, I, I think they're fascinating to hear Helen and David talk. Uh, we've always been concerned about leadership and the importance of leadership, whether it be at a national level, um, at a bureaucratic level, or an, um, an iwi or community level, and the importance of leadership when we're threatened. So it's, um, it's quite humbling and um, affirming to hear the importance of leadership. Is it polite for me to say? You know, some of the most, um, the, the, I know you, guys are far too polite to comment on the political elements of things, but, you know, the, some of the far-right, ultra-male type of ego uh, um, uh, leaders that we have around, actually, when you look at the statistics, have got some of the worst uh, epidemic unfolding in their countries at the moment. And you just go, oh, okay, all those ones are following a certain pattern of male leadership that actually got the most, uh, the worst statistics coming out day by day. That, that sounds like it might be an entree to you, uh, Helen Clark. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that some of the populists, if I could put it that way, your Bolsonaro's, your, your Boris Johnson, your, your, your Donald Trump, haven't done so well. No. And I have gone on the record as saying that, on average, uh, the women leaders around the world, of whom there are not many, uh, have done rather better than the men on average. That's not to say there haven't been fantastic examples of male leadership. There have. And I would instance the president of, of the Republic of Korea, for one, who's had a, led a successful response. But I think what we've seen on display with the women is a style of leadership that is often associated with women, but actually when adopted by men works very well as well in the corporate world and in the political world. And that is a style that is more consultative, uh, that does listen before making decisions, does take advice, doesn't have such a big ego that they think they know it all themselves. They, they act uh, on advice. And also importantly, I think uh, empathy has, has come across. You take uh, Prime Minister Erna Solberg of Norway, who held a, a consultation with children because she could appreciate that children were worried and concerned about what was, was happening. So th this has generated enormous uh, debate around the world. How is it that the, these women are leading uh, these, these good responses? But uh, I, I would recommend the approach that's been taken uh, two male leaders because it is a demonstrably more successful. Let's talk about the New Zealand response. It's been huge public buy-in, Helen Clark, uh, to the rather extraordinary measures that saw many of us effectively locked in our homes, business shut down, um, quite extraordinary and surreal for many of us. But the public bought into it. The public bought into it because I think the government was up front with it. It, you know, you watched other governments weaving and dodging. We don't need to name them. We saw them on our TV night after night. But I think there was a very important point 
uh, reached around early March when the government's advisors and those who are advising from outside and publicly as well were saying, throw out the flu pandemic plan. This isn't what we're dealing with. We're dealing with something completely different. This is not something where you should think in terms of managing peaks and flows and you know, making sure the hospitals can cope. We have a chance to eradicate this and we should take that chance. Now, it, it was a, a huge, huge step because no one else really was talking that way with that language of zero tolerance of, of the virus. But I think our public had seen enough of what was happening offshore to know that if we had a chance of doing that, we should take that chance. And because each step was well explained, in a sense, as citizens, we were invited to walk alongside each other on the journey. We bought into it and we got incredible results. I think we should you know, really be proud of people and the way, the way they cooperated. Look, you know, when books are written, people will find this little bit to criticise and that little bit to criticise and they'll say, should it have been X days earlier or later and why wasn't it this or that? Okay, you know, that, that, that's fine for historians, but governments have to act in the here and now and call it as they see it. And I think we are just you know, so fortunate to be living here and not be uh, exposed to the trauma that has destabilised societies around the world with this. Paparangi Reid, what are your thoughts on this? I know that there was um, considerable criticism, really, that there wasn't enough engagement with Māori, not enough uh, front-facing Māori uh, involved in the response and the public health messaging, and indeed on the uh, Epidemic Response Committee, um, experts such as yourself um, weren't called. Was that a significant concern to you? I think, first of all, I want to say that um, while the public health workforce has been run down over recent years, the, um, uh, as public health physicians, we have um, been involved in, for many decades in um, pandemic planning um, issues such as after SARS, after um, H1N1, the bird flu. Um, so we have had a little bit of trying out what would we do in a pandemic? And I think the Director General has been um, a part of that. And some of the team around him and public health experts throughout the country have been part of that. So we have some level of wisdom that we've um, used. And uh, so that's the first thing is that there was an element of preparedness, even though the public health workforce has been run down by um, previous governments. I do believe that we did slip into, so in New Zealand, we have been getting more comfortable in our treaty relationship over the last few years. And we have been, um, you become more bilingual, but all of that seemed to disappear. And we did very much get a stock standard, one size fit all, and it did appear to be very Pākehā. And that was a concern. And because considerate, proper consideration wasn't given to um, Māori concerns. So for instance, Māori took things into our own hands. We protected board, tribal borders. We shut marais before we were told to shut. We changed tikanga. We stopped doing hongi before we were told to. So some of that could have been engaged long earlier. 
previously, whenever there's a state of emergency, you will see marae and Māori communities be stalwarts of that community assistance. And that relationship fell away and we were left, and that was okay too, but we were left deciding on our own future with a, a little bit out of contact from government action. And I think there was a lost opportunity and a little bit of a, um, a wake up call about what was really happening to our relationship, to our, the bicultural aspect of our relationship that we were so convinced that we were on a journey towards. So yeah, maybe it was bad timing, maybe it was urgency, all these things will come out in the wash, but just caused a little, it was jarring, that miss was jarring. I just um, want to stick with you for a second, Paparangi Reid, just for the, 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 the sequence of this. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that vulnerable populations um, and poorer communities have been hit hard, you know, um, African Americans in Chicago, prisoners in South America, you name it. But in New Zealand, um, we know the disparities in, in health, we know the disparities in our economic standing of our Indigenous people, yet Māori don't seem to have been hit hard by COVID-19. I was looking today, only 8% of the cases were Māori. It seemed to be disproportionate in favour of Māori in terms of what had the impact had been. Correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. I'd be interested in your thoughts about why um, there haven't been a lot of cases among Māori, and I don't know of any deaths. Well, I wish we had perfect classification of ethnicity data and the reporting of such and our contact tracing right through to our um, testing, right through to our um, hospital and mortality statistics. But having said that, yes, I think that we are very lucky in the fact that we had little community transmission in New Zealand and most of the cases started from people uh, cases that were imported from overseas and spread through um, direct contacts and families of that. So um, because of those routes of transmission, we had less Māori involved in those. So I think uh, if we had been in a situation where had, there had been more community transmission, then we would have been more vulnerable. I'd like to get your thoughts, all of you, on, on the Swedish model. I don't want to go through country by country because there are some, you know, that are doing rather well and it's kind of mysterious, like Japan. Um, you can't quite work out, well, I can't, um, how they're doing as well as, as, as they are with a slightly unorthodox approach. But, but, but Sweden's the big outlier, right? What do we think about that, about that approach? Because they've never really gone into lockdown at all. Let me start by, by saying that everybody has to get as much understanding as possible about the virus when they're thinking through the strategies to uh, keep it at bay and, and contain outbreaks. This virus is airborne spread and it's very spatial. You get a small outbreak building up chains of transmission and then uh, it, it enlarges and perhaps if you leave it for a bit, it becomes explosive. If you wait three or four weeks, it can become very serious indeed. Uh, this just basic understanding of what sort of virus we're dealing with is really important. The countries that have done well are the countries that have put the effort into understanding the virus, realizing it's not the same as flu, and realizing that being act, acting fast and resolutely is the key to getting on top of outbreaks. Of course, we've seen it in New Zealand, but it's in, in many other countries as well. Also, the countries that have done well have been transparent and open and have trusted their people. The countries that have done well have put the interests of their people first 
and at the same time have done everything possible to protect those that are most vulnerable. Uh, Sweden, Sweden's approach assumed that it was possible to get people to change their behavior sufficiently without the need to impose any specific top-down uh, heavy government controls, particularly on physical distancing. Uh, to some extent, that's worked. But I think that the, the one challenge has been that even with getting people to be very responsible, they've still got quite high levels of transmission and they've had very high levels of mortality among older people. Uh, I think that that shows that you need to combine both. You need people themselves to take responsibility and behave differently and to do it, as I said, in a way that's fully taking account of what political leaders are advising. But then you need the state to be providing the necessary support infrastructure, as well as perhaps also instructions and restrictions to make it possible. And, and I think the Swedish model is an outlier. And I think that it will be found over time that, that they could have done better uh, if they had had slightly stronger uh, requests for uh, movement restriction and therefore uh, perhaps really slowed down the rate of increase of their number of cases a little bit more. But I very much uh, uh, try to avoid making comments on whether a country uh, is doing well or badly because of the role of the WHO. Fair, fair enough. No, I respect that. I did want to. I, I did want to come back to you quickly, though, Helen Clark, on on China because I, I don't want to leave it lying. There was a lack of transparency early on, was there not? There was suppression of of evidence and. You know, aren't we we're big enough, aren't we, to 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 call that out when we see it? And should we not do so? I think we can say that lack of transparency and and China are, are almost synonyms, right? It, it goes with the territory of a of an authoritarian uh, state. So it's not a surprise that yes, uh, the disease was notified late. What we don't know uh, is how early Beijing knew about it. Uh, my experience in dealing with the melanin and milk scandal back in 2008 was when the New Zealand government raised concerns in Beijing. Beijing had never heard of what was happening at the at the district and regional level, and acted extremely uh, quickly when it when it heard. Now, in, in this case, uh, Beijing didn't actually act that quickly once it notified either, and there appears to have been a a critical seven days after the Politburo determined that this was a extremely serious virus and there would have to be public health measures. It took seven days with millions of people traveling in the interim for Lunar New Year uh, before they they brought in very, very strict controls. Now, once they did that, of course, they, they managed to contain and get ahead of the virus. And I think we will see, you know, China keep uh, stamping it out where, wherever it, it, it comes. But uh, the reality is they could have notified earlier they could have acted earlier themselves. Uh, but having said all of that, that is not an excuse for the world's major Western economies to kind of sit and look at what was happening in China as if it was happening somewhere else and not going to happen to them. I think when the history books are written, there will be total bemusement as to why America wasn't prepared, why wasn't Britain prepared. Why weren't other major G7 economies prepared? Why did they just let it come at them? Have you got and a theory? I, I have enormous sympathy for Dr. Tedros, who, who was pleading with countries to get in place the basic measures, the, the, the physical distancing, the testing, the contact tracing, to get ahead of the pandemic. 
and I recall a conversation with him in, in mid-February when I was in Geneva. He said, what more can I do? I, every day I'm doing a press conference. I, I'm pleading for action. He said, he said to me around the 18th and 19th of February, we have a very narrow window to avert a pandemic, but that window is closing. How right he was. He wasn't listened to. And I hope when the full you know, review is done, people will record that WHO was pleading with countries to act and many did not act in a timely fashion. Okay, we're running out of time. I want to finish by pushing this forward and perhaps I can start with you, Paparangi, about your concerns about a second wave and then I want to finish by talking about living with the virus because it looks like we may have to do that for some time. So, Paparangi Reid, uh, how worried are you that we in New Zealand could get complacent and um, get, get hit again with this? Well, we... Um, have already seen that uh, many of us are frustrated with um, the uh, imposition on our freedoms and are busting out as much as we possibly can get away with. So we um, should be ready for um, what that means in terms of um, future waves. However, I do believe that we will have to get to learn to live with the virus or learn to live with the possibility of the virus um, in, our, in our next decade or in our lifetime until such time as we have appropriate uh, vaccines or other measures. Um, so I'm, um, I think we have to really turn our minds to a new reality and not the old reality in many ways, not just in terms of a virus. David Navarro, you, you've talked about the fact that we may have to live with this virus. Well, we are going to, aren't we? Let's not, I mean, we, we are going to have to live for the, with this virus for, for many years, if not decades, aren't we? I mean, we're still really living with the flu. But one, we have to live with this virus. Two, uh, the, the virus will require changes in uh, uh, working practices, uh, how we live, uh, and it's, uh, the change is going to be far-reaching because we're already seeing how in some communities or in farm worker dormitories, once you get COVID there, it's very hard indeed to dislodge it. So uh, depending on how serious we're going to be, uh, either we're going to have to see quite big changes in the way in which people live, in the way in which people work, the way in which older people are cared for, or we are going to be facing constant uh, waves of of death and suffering. And I want to stress suffering because uh, middle-aged people who recover from COVID, we're now seeing an awful lot of them have quite long-term difficulties. They, they, if they're physically fit, they can't go back to running for quite some time. Uh, if they are uh, uh, mentally uh, not well, they can be made much worse as a result of COVID. Uh, this is a really serious new virus that we've got to learn to live with, and we've got to learn to avoid it if at all possible. We've got to protect susceptible populations and that does include indigenous people in many other parts of the world and so uh, the sooner everybody starts to come to terms with that uh, and realize this is going to be a really massive widespread behavior change the better and and that's where governments civil society professional organizations the media all other groups of actors just have to do one thing which is to so support every single individual as they come to terms with and then make sense of what this means for themselves, for their families, 
for their employees and the like. It's the most extraordinary and massive sense-making project of all time. Uh, and again, I'm going to say, because I have to say it continuously, if only world leaders could realize that leadership means leading for all the people, especially when they're in times of distress, which is now, uh, then we would be in a much better place. And thank goodness for the Prime Minister of New Zealand and the example that she sets, uh, all should follow her playbook. Well, perhaps a final word from the former Prime Minister of New Zealand to finish. Uh, I'm feeling very confident about New Zealand. I, I think that, you know, we from a sort of standing start, we have been able to put in place a testing and contract uh, contact tracing mechanism, which means that any cases that may come as we open our bubble up to Australia uh, should be able to be quickly swarmed around and confined. I think we have to acknowledge there is that risk if, if, if we open up, and I don't think we can open up any any time soon. The real issue is really the, the rest of the world and whether it can behave the way David has set out. Uh, the reality that this is with us for some time, we all have hopes for a vaccine, but it's, it's not tomorrow. It's not gonna be rolled out to us in the, in the middle of next year. So we have to change the way we behave. You cannot hospitalise your way out of a pandemic like this. Yeah. You can only move out of it when the virus stops finding people to infect. And that means keeping all the measures we're now very familiar with in place. Thank you so much, Helen Clark, Paparangi Reid and David Nabarro with us for the health episode of After the Virus. After the Virus is produced by RNZ, by me, Guy Espiner, and Justin Gregory. Claire Eastham Farrelly is the visual director, Veronica Schmidt and Tim Watkin are the executive producers. You can also watch this series on video, so head over to rnz.co.nz slash podcasts to catch that and for plenty of other great content. All RNZ podcasts are free to listen to and ad-free as well on rnz.co.nz and on the RNZ app. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.